signs in the end times. And I want to begin with a theme verse. And the theme verse is 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3. Let no one deceive you, for it, the day of the Lord, will not come unless the apostasy comes first. Well, in this passage and many others, the Bible clearly and explicitly prophesies that one of the signs of the end times will be a great apostasy in the church. And folks, that is exactly what we are witnessing today. Take this man, for example, John Spong, former Episcopal Bishop of New Jersey. He has written books in which he denies the virgin birth, denies the miracles of Jesus, denies the resurrection, denies the second coming, and argues that Paul and Timothy were homosexual lovers. Or consider this man, R. Kirby Godsey, who is currently the chancellor of Mercer University, a Southern Baptist University in Georgia. This man served as president of Mercer University for 27 years, from 1979 to 2006. And during that time, the school was affiliated with the Georgia Baptist Convention. Today, he continues as the chancellor of the school. In his writings, he denies the inerrancy of the Bible. He denies the unique power and authority of God. He denies the validity of the gospel accounts of the life of Jesus. He denies the efficacy of Jesus' atonement. And he denies the uniqueness of Jesus as the only Savior. Thank God, in 2005, the Georgia Baptist Convention finally had enough and washed their hands of it and disassociated themselves from Mercer University. He continues as its chancellor, and if you go to their website, you will see that they continue to this day to claim that they are a Baptist university. Then there is this man, the Right Reverend Alan Smithson. This is an Anglican bishop of Jarrow in England, and this man announced a few years ago, called a press conference and shocked even the English by saying that he had decided that he was going to have a unique sacrifice during the 40 days of Lent. He said, here's what I'm going to sacrifice during the 40 days of Lent. I'm going to sacrifice Bible reading. And instead, I'm going to use the 40 days of Lent to read the Quran so that I can achieve higher consciousness. This is a bishop of the Anglican Church. And then there is this man, the Reverend Bill Phipps, who served as moderator of the United Church of Canada from 1998 to 2000. After he was selected as the chief of the largest church in Canada, he proceeded to hold a press conference in which he denied all the fundamentals of the faith, including the deity of Jesus. Finally, the pagan secular news media was so amazed at this man that they asked him, what do you believe? And his answer was, I don't know what I believe, and I consider the question to be irrelevant. Or consider this. From 1985 to 1991, a group of so-called Bible scholars from America's theological seminaries studied and voted on the sayings of Jesus. They called themselves the Jesus Seminar. Their conclusion was this. 30% of the sayings in the Gospels came from Jesus. 30% were of questionable origin. 40% were totally fictitious. They even added a fifth gospel saying that the gospel of Thomas was as authoritative as the other gospels, a gospel that's always been rejected by the church. They then voted unanimously that all the many statements that Jesus made about his second coming were totally fictitious and there is no promise whatsoever in the Bible that he will ever return. Or consider this, the Methodist and Presbyterian church hierarchies teamed up twice in the 1990s to sponsor what they call re-imaging conferences for women. At both of these conferences, women were called upon to repudiate 
what they call, quote, the male chauvinist God of the scriptures. And they encouraged their women instead to embrace a female deity. They gave them a choice. They said they could embrace Sophia, Aphrodite, Isis, or even the uh, Irish goddess called Bridget. This two times in the 1990s they did that. In 1998, the United Church of Canada became the first Christian denomination to authorize the ordination of homosexuals. In 2003, Gene Robinson became the first homosexual bishop of the Episcopal Church. In 2005, the United Church of Christ, President Obama's church, became the first American denomination to officially approve same-sex marriage. And then there's Brian McLaren. Brian McLaren, whom you're going to hear much more about later this afternoon when uh, we have our second presentation by Dr. Carlson. He is the leader of the emergent church movement. He claims to be evangelical. And yet this man, when asked to define uh, to, uh, what he thought about the book, The Da Vinci Code, made this comment. I don't think The Da Vinci Code has more harmful ideas in it than the Left Behind series. Or when he was asked to define where he was theologically, he said, I am Catholic, evangelical, post-Protestant, liberal, conservative, mystical, poetic, biblical, fundamentalist, Calvinist, Anabaptist, Anglican, and Methodist. You know why he said that? Because he argues that doctrine is totally irrelevant and therefore he is all things to all people. Or consider Catherine Jeffrey Shorey. Catherine Jeffrey Shorey was elected the bishop of the Episcopal Church of America in 2006. She is currently serving a nine-year term. When she was in, in, in installed as bishop, she was asked this question. How can you justify your support of homosexuality when the Bible so clearly condemns it? Here is her answer. The Bible was written in a very different historical context by people asking different questions. In other words, translated, the Bible is totally irrelevant concerning that question and many others. This is the head of the Episcopal Church of America at this time. At the very same convocation that elected her as bishop, the delegates passed a resolution expressing regret for consecrating the first homosexual bishop in 2003. But the next day, they voted to continue consecrating homosexual bishops. And then the next day, they voted to avoid consecrating additional homosexual bishops. All of which prompted, <laughs> this is unbelievable, all of which prompted uh, the syndicated columnist Cal Thomas to make this comment. Apparently, they are so wishy-washy that they are even wishy-washy about their wishy-washiness. <laughs> you know, do I really need to present any more evidence to convince you that we are in the midst of the great end-time apostasy that is prophesied in the Bible? William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, died in 1912. Shortly before his death, he gave a prophecy about Christianity in the 20th century that proved to be deadly accurate. And I want you to keep in mind that when he made this prophecy in the 1890s, when he made this prophecy, he made it at a time when Christian leaders were unified in their viewpoint that the 20th century would be the century of the church and that during the 20th century, the church would have its most glorious time and would conquer the whole world for Jesus Christ. He said to the contrary, that he felt that by the end of the 20th century, much of the church would be preaching Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, and heaven without hell. Sad to say, he was right on target. As this particular cartoon emphasizes, here is a cartoon advertising the light church. Look what it says. 24% fewer commitments, 
home of the 7.5% tithe. 15-minute sermons, 45-minute worship services. We have only eight commandments. You choose. Uh, we use just a three spiritual laws, and we have an 800-year millennium. Everything you've ever wanted in a church and less. Unfortunately, that's where we are today. What I have just recounted for you is only a smattering of the gross apostasy that is rampaging through Christianity today. And as you saw, no denomination is immune. And I want to emphasize that no denomination is immune to the apostasy that's going through the church today. I want to emphasize it to you with a startling example, one that you'll find hard, hard to believe. I was born into and I grew up in the non-instrumental churches of Christ. I left them over 35 years ago for a number of reasons, but I've kept up with them over the years. One of the things that has always emphasized this, uh, characterized this particular denomination is that they have never allowed outside speakers in their churches or in their organizations. They're very exclusivistic. You've got to be a member of the Church of Christ to speak in a Church of Christ or to speak at one of their organizations. So you can imagine how surprised I was this past year in the spring of 2008 when I received an advertisement about the biggest event that occurs each year among the Churches of Christ, and that is the Abilene Christian University Lectureship, which lasts a week and attracts about 10,000 people. I could hardly believe my eyes when I looked at it and it pointed out that the keynote speaker of the whole convention was going to be an outsider. But let me tell you, I was more than surprised when I saw who it was. I was not surprised when I saw who it was. I was dumbfounded and I was flabbergasted because the keynote speaker was none other than this man, Brian McLaren, the apostate leader of the emergent church movement. Now, I may disagree with the Churches of Christ on a lot of doctrinal issues, but I have always admired their commitment to the Bible as the inerrant Word of God. And yet here we have them inviting a man who denies the inerrancy of the Scripture, who denies that there is any such thing as absolute truth. I was so deeply disturbed by this invitation that I sat down and I wrote a letter to the president of the school, Royce Money. And in that letter, I made this comment. I have always delighted when I see any Church of Christ-related organization like yours inviting guest speakers from outside your fellowship. But I am sincerely alarmed to see that you have invited Brian McLaren to be your featured speaker this year. I don't know if you're aware of it or not, but Mr. McLaren is the leader of the emergent church movement, which in my opinion and the opinion of many others is one of the most apostate movements in Christianity today. Its leaders deny the inerrancy of the Bible. They deny the existence of absolute truth. And many advocate that there are a great variety of roads to God of which Christianity is only one. They are also basically advocates of the social gospel. I am enclosing some quotes from the writings of Mr. McLaren. You can, of course, Google his name on the Internet and find detailed analysis of his apostasy. I sincerely hope you will reconsider your decision to allow this man to share his heretical views with your people. And then I attached two typewritten pages of quotes from his books. It took me a long time to put all this together. For example, let me give you one of these quotes. Look at this one. The church has been preoccupied with the question, what happens to your soul after you die? As if the reason for Jesus' coming can be summed up in Jesus is trying to help get more souls into heaven as opposed to hell after they die. I just think a fair reading of the gospel blows that out of the water. I don't think that the entire message in life of Jesus can be boiled down to that bottom line. And that's just one of the many absurd quotes that you can find in his books. Like when he's asked about homosexuality, he says, who cares? What difference does it make? This is the kind of man they invited. Now, the president, Royce Money, wrote me back. And he said he really didn't know anything about McLaren. He said he had 
given my letter to the chairman of the Bible department because he said those were the guys who invited him. About two weeks later, I received a letter from the chairman of the Bible department. You won't believe what he said. He said, Dr. Reagan, I read your letter and I read the quotes and I'm sure that you have taken all those quotes out of context because I have personally met Brian McLaren and he is a very nice man. <laughs> of course he's a nice man. Do you expect apostates to have 666 tattooed on their forehead? I mean, come on. What does being a nice man have to do with anything? He's a nice man who happens to be a classic example of a wolf in sheep's clothing. Let me tell you how off the wall this man is. He recently held a conference in Seattle, Washington. At that conference, he got up and he said that John 3.16 has always been misinterpreted by the church. He said, it's not about personal salvation. It's about salvation of the world, salvation of the cosmos, salvation of the environment. And he then invited people to come forward and they had barrels of dirt across the front. And he said, please come forward and stick your hands in the barrels and feel the dirt and make a commitment to Jesus Christ that you'll do everything you can to save the environment. This is the kind of apostasy. And even the churches of Christ inviting a man like this to speak. When I read that letter from the chairman of the Bible department about what a nice guy he was, it reminded me of this. Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Well, there's much talk today going around about how unified, glorious, and triumphant the church is going to be in the end times right before the return of Jesus. Well, this Pollyanna image of the church is certainly attractive, but I tell you, it does not correspond with what the Bible prophesied. What the Bible prophesies, first of all, is that in the end times, the church is going to be racked by apostasy. For example, in Matthew 24, 10, Jesus prophesied that many will fall away from the faith. As we've seen, Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2 said, Paul prophesied there will be a great apostasy. And Paul said it will be due to the fact that men will hold to a form of religion, but they will deny its power. The fulfillment of this prophecy began in this country in the 1920s, when the German school of higher criticism invaded our seminaries. That school advocated that the Bible should be approached like any other piece of literature, like the writings of Shakespeare with a critical eye. The concepts of the special inspiration and inerrancy of the Bible were thrown aside and mocked. And the Bible was held up as nothing more than man's search for God and therefore full of myth, legend, and superstition. Before long, we had Christian leaders scoffing, scoffing openly at such things as the virgin birth, the miracles of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and flatly denying the second coming of Jesus. And as the uniqueness of Jesus was downplayed, many denominations began to embrace either universalism, all will be saved, or the idea that there are many different roads to God, which of course made a liar of Jesus who said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and there is no other way to the Father except by me. Paul's prophecy in 2 Timothy 3, 5 is being fulfilled before our very eyes. For everywhere you look today, you can see Christians who hold to the form of religion, but who deny its power. They deny the power of the word, 
They deny its inerrancy and its all-sufficiency. They deny the power of the blood of Jesus, his deity, and his atonement. A second set of these prophecies has to do with cults. The Bible says in the end time, the church is going to be racked by cultic deception. And Jesus emphasized this point in his uh, great uh, sermon on uh, uh, the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. It's the reason that all Bible prophecy ministries are concerned about cults and teach about cults. Look what Jesus said in Matthew 24. It's the only sign, he repeated, verse 4, see to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many. And then he repeats it in verse 11. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. And then he repeats it a third time in verse 24. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Jesus says one of the greatest signs of the end times is going to be an explosion of cults. There's always been cults in the church, but the explosion began in the middle of the 19th century. Uh, let me mention this first of all, 1 Timothy 4.1, where Paul emphasizes this. The Spirit explicitly says, listen to that, the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Now, as I said, the explosion occurred in the middle of the 19th century with the formation of the largest cult in the world, and that is the cult of Mormonism. A religion that teaches that Jesus is the brother of Lucifer and that Jesus is a created being created by the super god Adam who is an exalted man and that you become a god equal to Jesus Christ if you work hard enough and do everything that the Mormon church tells you to do. Thank God this church has stopped growing in America today. Its growth is zero in America today. But it's growing like wildfire in other areas of the world where people are not so familiar with the Scriptures. Another of those, by the end of the 19th century, the second largest cult had come on the scene. And that was, of course, the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses with their continuous false prophecies and with their teaching that Jesus really was not Jesus of Nazareth, God in the flesh, but he was Mark, uh, 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 Michael the Archangel. On and on it goes until today. A Watchman Fellowship located in Arlington, Texas, publishes an annual directory of cults. And, and this thing runs almost 200 pages now. Cult after cult. I, I recommend you get this catalog. It is really good. And it, it, it defines all the different cults that exist all across America today. You, you, it's just mind-boggling how many there are. You go to Los Angeles, there's one on every corner. Uh, in fact, the wildest, I asked James Walker when I was interviewing him on TV, I said, what is the strangest cult that you've ever discovered? He said, one founded by a Nobel Prize winner in Los Angeles. I said, well, I figured it was in Los Angeles. What's it about? He said, they teach that Jesus was a mushroom. And they teach that if you want to experience Jesus, you must get together in a home Bible study, quote unquote, and you must ingest mushrooms and have hallucinations, and then you will experience Jesus. This is just one of the many cults that are mentioned in this particular catalog. We are in the midst of an absolute explosion of cults. Uh, perhaps the most dangerous of all is this one, the Masonic Order. And the reason I say it's the most dangerous is because Masons and, and their members have so thoroughly infiltrated Christian churches of all denominations, including particularly Southern Baptists. They go to church on Sunday morning and they shout amen to sermons about salvation by grace through faith. But then they go to their lodge. And at their lodge, they affirm that salvation is by good works and that anybody can earn their way to heaven regardless of what God they worship. I'll never forget one time I went to Lexington, Kentucky, and a man called me. I was going to hold a meeting there, and a man called me and said, Can I come to your motel room and talk with you? Well, I'm always reluctant to allow people to do that because 
uh, often they come and, and, and they just don't leave. They, they want to stay for hours. I told him, I said, I'll give you 30 minutes. He came and he said, I wanted to tell you about something. He said, uh, I was uh, uh, recently in my Sunday school class, a large church there in Lexington. He said, we were teaching on, uh, the, the uh, associate pastor was teaching on cults. And we went through all the cults and we had one lesson to go. And he said, next, next Sunday we're going to talk about the Masons. And he said, I got mad because I was a Mason. I said, well, how dare you call the Masons a cult? He said, well, I don't know that much about it. I've just got a book here, and I'll, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll give, you, I'll give you equal time. Next Sunday morning, I'll preach, tell you 30 minutes why I think it's a cult, and you can get up and tell us why you don't think it's a cult. And he said, for the first time in my life, I got my Masonic manual out, and I read it. He said, I never read it. And he said, I was as high as you could go in the Masons. But he said, I bought every degree. I bought every degree. And he said, I never read the book. And he said, when I got to page 92, I got on my knees. I wept before the Lord. I asked God to forgive me. I took my Masonic ring out and beat it up with a hammer. And I wrote a letter in and told him I was out of there forever and told him why. And I said, well, I won't. what's on page 92? <laughs> he gave me the Kentucky handbook. You know what it says on page 92? It says, the ultimate goal of all Masons is to spend eternity on their knees before the great architect of the universe, worshiping him hand in hand with Jews, with Buddhists, with Confucians, and it contains every religion in the world. Every religion in the world. How can you be a Christian who believes in salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ only and be a member of an organization? You see these men standing here with these little aprons? You know what those aprons symbolize? They symbolize that they are covering their sin by their good works. You can work your way into heaven. I had a Southern Baptist preacher call me recently. He said, have you ever been to a Masonic funeral? I said, yes. He said, well, we just had one in my church and we'll never have one again. I said, I know why. He said, you better believe it. He said, I got up and preached about uh, the salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And then they took over. And by the time they got through, he had worked his way to heaven. And he said, I'm not going to have that again. I said, well, I appreciate your courage. But let me tell you something. You better line up another pulpit because if you stand against it, you'll probably be fired. And that's the case all across the nation today. It is a serious invasion of our churches by a cultic group. All right. A third group of prophecies indicate that in the end times, the church will be assailed by doctrinal errors, by heresies. And by heresies, I, I see a difference between heresies and apostasy. Apostasy is the sort of thing that can damn your soul to hell. A heresy is something that uh, will not damn your soul to hell, but it will confuse and weaken the spirit. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul said, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and they will turn their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Boy, are we ever in the midst of the fulfillment of that particular prophecy. Everywhere you look today, you see people wanting to have their ears tickled and turning aside into one myth after another. I grew up with one of those, the myth, one of those myths, and that myth was the myth of cessationism. I don't know if you know what that is, but it's the teaching, and it's in many churches, not just the church I grew up in. It's the teaching that the gifts of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit all ceased in the first century. When the last apostle died, the Holy Spirit went into retirement and all the gifts of the Spirit ceased and they have not existed since that time. In fact, there are many churches today who still teach that the Holy Spirit is no longer active. In fact, we were taught that the only thing that we could call the Holy Spirit was the Bible itself and the more scripture you memorize, the more of the Holy Spirit you got. We didn't even believe in the Trinity. We didn't even believe that the Holy Spirit 
was a personality of the Trinity. And then there's the prosperity gospel. Boy, does that ever popular in our particular society. The prosperity gospel. God wants you wealthy. I remember reading an interview of Benny Hinn in which he said, you know, I preached that for a long time. He still does. But he said, I preached it for a long time. But he said, you know, when I was in the Philippines preaching to people living in mass poverty, and they were all more devout Christians than I'd ever seen in my life, I began to think, maybe there's something wrong here, (laughs) that God wants all Christians to be wealthy. Well, I hope he thinks about that some more because he needs to give it very serious consideration. Or consider the social gospel. Most of our mainline denominations are caught up in this. Their goal is not to bring people to Jesus Christ that their souls might be saved and spend eternity with God. But their purpose instead is to transform society. And there's nothing wrong with standing for right things in society. But it's certainly wrong when you decide that that's more important. It's more important to feed a person than it is to share the gospel with them. You should do both. But their idea is, no, you just feed the the body and let the soul take care of itself. That's the social gospel. Or consider the word of faith gospel. The word of faith gospel is the gospel that teaches we are little gods who can speak healing and wealth into existence. All we have to do is name it and claim it and it will be ours. It appeals to the greed in people's heart. Or consider the feel-good gospel. Don't worry, be happy. God is not concerned with your sin. He just wants you to be happy. Or consider the positive thinking gospel. You can best cope with life through the power of positive thinking. Look at the name of this book by Shooter. You're talking about abomination. This is straight from the pit of hell. The name of it is, if it's going to be, it's up to me. Can you think of anything more unchristian than that? If it's going to be, it's up to me, not up to God. I'm the one that's got to accomplish it through the power of positive thinking. Or consider replacement theology. Most of Christianity today, both Catholic and Protestant, is caught up in this concept that God washed his hands of the Jews in the first century because they are the Christ killers. He has replaced the Jewish people with the church. He has no purpose left for the Jewish people. The reestablishment of Israel is simply an accident of history. An accident of history has no theological significance whatsoever. It has been the major source of anti-Semitism throughout all of history. Or consider dual covenant theology. Dual covenant theology says the Jews do not need Jesus. You don't preach Jesus to the Jews. Forget about it. They can earn their way to heaven by following the Torah. They do not need to put their faith in a Messiah. It is a horrible theology. It is a theology that wants to love the Jews into heaven by refusing to give them the gospel. And what they're really doing is loving them straight into hell. It's a horrible theology. Or consider preterism. You talk about a quirky theology. Preterism teaches that the, all of the prophecies about the second coming of Jesus, all or nearly all, depends on the preterists, were all fulfilled in the first century. That we don't have the second coming of Jesus to look forward to or the great resurrection to look forward to. It always reminds me of that statement by Paul where he said, avoid these two men, and he named the men. He said, avoid them because they teach that the resurrection has already occurred. These people teach the second coming has already occurred. Well, I could go on and on. I think you see that there is heresy everywhere you look in the church today. There is a fourth characteristic prophesied about the end-time church, and that is that it will be compromised and corrupted by worldliness. There are many prophecies about this. The most important is in Revelation 3, which describes the end-time church. And to the angel of the church at Laodicea write, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, I have become wealthy, I have need of nothing. The end-time church, full of pride 
compromised with the world and wallowing in the world. In fact, later on in that passage, it shows Jesus standing at the door of that church knocking, saying, will you let me come in? I mean, I've been to those churches where Jesus would not be welcome. He's talking, he's like, would you let me come in? And when they don't open the door, here's what he says about them. You are in reality wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. You think you're great, but this is the situation that tells the truth about you. The picture here is a pathetic one. The church is apathetic. It's caught up in the world full of pride. In fulfillment, uh, uh, Jesus represents, uh, 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 in the end time, in fulfillment of this prophecy, our churches today are full of cultural Christians. They're full of schizophrenic Christians. They're full of carnal Christians. And they're full of greedy Christians. The cultural Christians have accepted Jesus as Savior, but they refuse to accept him as Lord. The schizophrenic Christians walk with one foot in the church and one foot in the world. The carnal Christians shout hallelujah on Sunday morning and go out and live like pagans during the rest of the week. The greedy Christians are in pursuit of health, wealth, and power. All they want is what they can get out of Christianity. For all of these types of Christians, the cross and its message of sacrifice is as offensive to them as it is to the world. Let me mention one other prophecy concerning apostasy in the end times. It's in 2 Peter chapter 3. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. And they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. In the end times, there will be scoffers. When I first noticed that verse, I for years thought that was talking about the world. The world would scoff at the idea of the second coming of Jesus Christ. The world doesn't scoff at the second coming of Jesus Christ because they could care less. They don't believe in it anyway. It's just nonsense to them. The scoffers are people who profess to be Christians. The church today is full of professing Christians who are openly scoffing at the idea of the soon return of Jesus Christ. Consider Rick Warren in his book, The Purpose Driven Church. On page 157, you can go check it yourself, he mocks, he mocks those who believe in Bible prophecy. He states this, if you want Jesus to come back sooner, focus on fulfilling your message, not trying to figure out prophecy. He goes on to characterize prophecy uh, as distractive. He says it's a distraction. And he says anyone who gets involved in a distraction like Bible prophecy, I quote, is not fit for the kingdom of God not fit for the kingdom of God. That's open scoffing about Bible prophecy and the second coming of Jesus. Consider Brian McLaren. Just in April of this year, he wrote an article in Sojourner Magazine, the most liberal publication in Christendom today. He wrote an article in it in which he stressed that there is no end-time role for Israel, that no Bible prophecy has to do with Israel in the end times. And he said this, anyone who believes that Israel has a special place in end-time prophecy is terrible, deadly, he said the belief is distorted, it's biblically unfaithful, and it's morally and ethically harmful. He further stated that those who take end-time Bible prophecy seriously use a bogus end-of-the-world scenario to create a kind of death wish for World War III, which, unless it is confronted more robustly by the rest of us, could too easily create a self-fulfilling prophecy. In other words, he's saying those who believe in Bible prophecy want to see the world blow up. They want to see World War III come. They're praying for World War III so the Lord will come quickly. What nonsense. What absolute nonsense. Or consider this man, Tony Campala, one of the most liberal spokesmen today who calls himself an evangelical. In his book, Speaking My Mind, he says this, rigid Christians, that's you and me, rigid Christians who believe in the possibility of Jesus' soon return or a real problem for the whole world.
He then goes on to say that the reason we're a problem is because we are the ones who are responsible for the wars that are going on in the world today. And he names nearly all the evils in the world and puts them on us. And then, of course, there's Bill Moyers, the PBS journalist who's a Baptist seminary graduate. I don't know if you knew that or not. But uh, he gave a speech in 2004 in which he denounced Tim LaHaye as a religious warrior who subscribes, like other true believers, to a fantastical theology. You believe in the end times? You believe in the second coming of Jesus? That's fantastical theology. He then claimed that those who believe in Bible prophecy, look at this, they desire environmental disaster as a sign of the coming apocalypse. In December of 2008, the National Council of Churches joined the chorus of scoffers by issuing a denunciation of those who believe in end-time Bible prophecy. Here's what they said. They denounced all those who consider the state of Israel to be divinely ordained and scripturally determined with a central role in ushering in end-time history. The existence of Israel is just an accident of history. It has no prophetic meaning whatsoever. Well, let's pause for a summary. Concerning the church in the end times, the Bible prophesies the development of gross apostasy. There are many roads to God. It prophesies an explosion of cults. Come follow us and you can work your way to heaven. It prophesies the spread of doctrinal heresies. God wants you to be rich. It uh, prophesies the church corrupted by worldliness. God is not concerned with sin. He just wants you to be happy. And it prophesies scoffing concerning the second coming. I see this so often today, this statement. Jesus returned when you accepted him into your heart. That's all there is to the second coming. Those are the words of Christian leaders. I guess the only positive thing that can be said about this rapidly growing apostasy is that it's a sure sign that we are living in the season of the Lord's return. Amen. I want to conclude this morning on a positive note. Not all the spiritual signs of the end times are negative in nature. The Bible clearly prophesies that there is going to be a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the end times. The prophecies concerning this outpouring are often expressed in symbolic terms as the early rain and the latter rain. This, of course, is a, a reference to the two rainy seasons of Israel. That symbolism is used to express the idea that there will be two great outpourings of the Holy Spirit. The first was at Pentecost. That was the early rain. But Joel chapter 2 says, point blank, that the second great outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the latter rain, will occur after Israel is reestablished in the land. After the children of Israel are regathered from the four corners of the earth and put back in the land. That occurred in the 20th century. It is continuing today. And of course, it began to accelerate after the establishment of Israel on May the 14th, 1948. Today, as we look around the world, we can see many manifestations of this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. For example, world evangelism. In 1949, Billy Graham's ministry took off like a rocket. And since that time, his ministry alone has reached more people with the message of the gospel than all of the evangelists in the history of Christianity for 2,000 years before him, due mainly to the use of modern technology like satellite television and radio. Or consider the rediscovery of the Holy Spirit. At the beginning of the 20th century, both Catholics and Protestants taught cessationism. Both taught 
The Holy Spirit had retired in the first century. By the end of the 20th century, after the impact of the Pentecostal movement, the charismatic movement, the third wave movement, by the end of the 20th century, nearly all churches were teaching the Holy Spirit is alive and well. The Holy Spirit dwells the believer. The Holy Spirit gifts the believer. The rediscovery of the Holy Spirit itself is a sign that we are in this final outpouring. Another would be Messianic Judaism. Last night, Marty Getch, you saw an example of what God's doing in Jewish hearts. In 1967... Following the Six-Day War, the Spirit of God fell upon Jews all over this world. Thousands and millions of Jews began to turn to Jesus and accept Yeshua as their Hamashiach. In 1967, when the Six-Day War occurred, there was not one Messianic congregation on planet Earth. Not one. Today, there's over 500. And there are hundreds of thousands, yea, even millions of Jews all over the world who are celebrating Yeshua as their Messiah. In fact, Morty left this morning to go to a major, the biggest Messianic convocation of the year that's held in the Philadelphia area where thousands and tens of thousands of Jews will be celebrating Jesus as their Messiah. Another would be the understanding of Bible prophecy. Over and over it says in the Old Testament, both in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and in Daniel, that the end time prophecies will not be understood until the time comes for them to be understood. Daniel chapter 12. Daniel said, Lord, I don't understand these prophecies. You know what God told him? It's not for you to understand, for you to write them. When the time comes for them to be understood, they will be understood. And what happened? In 1970, Hal Lindsey wrote a book called The Late Great Planet Earth. And the New York Times recently certified that that book was the number one best-selling book in the world, second only to the Bible, for 10 consecutive years from 1970 to 1980. And what did he do? All in the world he did was stop providing supernatural explanations of Revelation and instead providing down-to-earth realistic explanations. Because suddenly... People could understand things in the book of Revelation they had never understood before. And why was that? Historical developments and technological developments. For example, all of end-time prophecy focuses on one thing, Israel. Israel. How could you understand those prophecies before 1948? How could you understand them when Israel did not exist? How could you understand them when there was no prospect that Israel would ever exist? Up until the very day Israel came into being. People said it will never exist. And when it came into being, people said it will be gone within a week. The Arabs will destroy it. To this day, Israel continues to exist because God says in Amos 9, I will put you back in the land and you will never be uprooted again. And he's keeping that promise. He who watches over Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. So just the very understanding about there's so many, many prophecies that cannot be understood apart from modern technology. For example, in Revelation chapter 11, it says there's going to be two great witnesses of God who will be preaching the gospel all through the the first half of the tribulation. And then suddenly they will be killed by the Antichrist and the whole world will rejoice and their bodies will lie in the streets of Jerusalem for three and a half days and the whole world will look upon them. There was no way to understand that prophecy before the late 1960s. How could the whole world look upon two bodies lying in the streets of Jerusalem? Today, we don't even stop and think about it. You just point a TV camera, zap it up to a satellite, and the whole world can watch two bodies lying in the streets of Jerusalem. There are many, many prophecies like that that we're understanding for the first time as a result of development of history and like the development of the European Union and technological developments. Or another, Davidic praise worship. The Bible says that in the end times, the tabernacle of David will be resurrected again. The tabernacle of David was a tabernacle of praise where people clapped their hands, they danced, they sang, they shouted, they, they had expressive worship. Never in the history of Israel, never had there been expressive worship. It had always been ritual worship, the ritual worship of sacrifice. There was never any joy. The only joy you can find of worship in the Old Testament scriptures is spontaneous. 
When, for example, Pharaoh and his armies were killed, uh, drowned in the, in the Red Sea, Miriam began to dance and sing. But there was nothing in the actual worship of Israel until David came on the scene and revolutionized all the worship. And the Bible says in the end times that kind of worship is going to be raised up again. It began in 1980. This is a photograph. In 1987 of the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. But in 1980, when Israel said, Jerusalem is ours, and they officially annexed Jerusalem, all of the embassies of the world moved to Tel Aviv. What an insult. Except the International Christian Embassy. And they said, we're going to stand by Israel. And they invited Christians from all over the world. 4,000 came. They got the best practitioners of Davidic worship in the world to come, like Randall Bain. And they put on a display of Davidic worship. It was videotaped, and 4,000 Christians took it back home to over 120 countries. And suddenly, Davidic worship just exploded all over the world, just as the Bible said it would in the end times. So we have many manifestations that we are living in this period of the great outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And the question is, how do you and I respond to all this? Well, one thing we do is we open ourselves up to the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Basically, the church today is polarizing between those who are open to the Spirit and are being energized for powerful service in the Lord's kingdom and the majority who are rejecting the Holy Spirit and compromising with the world. Jesus prophesied that this would take place in Matthew 13, beginning with verse 24. He told the parable of the wheat and tares, and he prophesied there would be a dual ripening in the end times of apostasy and revival, depending on whether or not people open themselves up to the Spirit. The second thing we're to do, test everything by the Word of God. Oh, how we need that today. The problem is most Christians cannot test anything by the Word of God because they don't know the Word of God. Uh, there's an average of five Bibles in every home in America. It's the least read bestseller of all times. And if you don't read it, if you don't know it, how can you test anything? But we're told to test everything. Paul commended people for testing him. He was an apostle of God. And he commended them for testing him with the Scriptures to see whether or not he said was true. A third thing we're to do is that we are to stand for truth and righteousness. If we don't do it, nobody will. If we don't do it, nobody will. We are to be salt. We are to be light. We are to speak out. We are to stand up. Don Wildman is one of my Christian heroes because he was a pastor of a little Methodist church in Tupelo, Mississippi, when God tapped him on the shoulder and said, stand up and speak out. And he did. And within 10 years, he had one of the biggest ministries in the United States speaking out against the filth and the, uh, uh, the immorality, the violence on television and movies. All of Hollywood scared to death of him. New York, the, 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 the media is scared to death of him. They don't understand why he has so much power because he's just a guy from Tupelo, Mississippi. God has a great sense of humor. From Tupelo, Mississippi, who, who's got all these people scared to death because he speaks out. And you know who he says are his greatest critics? He says his greatest critics are pastors. He said, every day I receive at least 10 letters from pastors saying, why do you waste your time on this? You're losing the battle. Things are worse than when you began. He said, let me tell you something. God didn't call me to win. He called me to stand. Jesus Christ is the one that's going to win. Fourth, we are called to commit our lives to holiness. Commit our lives to holiness. And uh, what does that mean? That means simply make Jesus Lord of everything. Is he Lord of what you eat? Lord of your music? Is he Lord of, of what you read? What is he Lord of? Make him Lord of everything. That is what's called the holiness. And finally, we are called to share the gospel with as many people as we can, as quickly as we can. So often pastors say to me, I never teach on Bible prophecy because I consider it irrelevant. It's all pie in the sky. I got to deal with problems here and now. I got a problem known to man in my church. I got to deal with them. And I say to them, you don't understand Bible prophecy. 
Because if you could ever convince a person, number one, Jesus is coming back, really convince them, not here but in their heart. And number two, that is an event that can occur any moment. You know what will happen? They'll commit their lives to holiness and they'll start sharing the gospel with as many people as they can. How much more practical could that be? I don't know. One final thing I would encourage, we are to live with an eternal perspective. Get our eyes off this world. I tell you, recently I just stopped listening to the news because all the news does is just get me mad. Uh, my wife said that if they would take a TV camera and just po- focus it on me while I watch the evening news, it would be the greatest reality show in America as I'm screaming and yelling and, you know, and want to throw something through the TV and find out inside, you know, I, I just, I can get along without that. I can just get along without it. I, I want to keep my eyes on Jesus and not what's going on in this world, but I'm going to live with an eternal perspective with their hearts tuned to the Lord's return, and every morning getting up and looking at the sky and shouting, Maranatha, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. That's what we ought to be doing as we wait for the coming of the Lord. Thank you, and God bless you. Thank you. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord.